Hello, everyone. Welcome to Designing Science, the IndieBio podcast. I'm Arvind Gupta, your host and the founder of IndieBio. I'm here to help share the secrets and tales from the frontiers of biotechnology. IndieBio enables the world's best scientists to build radically innovative companies. This podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. I'm super excited to have with us today, James Collins, uh, who is a Tremere Professor of Bioengineering in the Department of Biological Engineering Institute for Medical Engineering and Science at MIT. He is also affiliated with the Broad Institute and the Weiss Institute. His research group works in synthetic biology and systems biology with a particular focus on using network biology approaches to study antibiotic action, bacterial defense mechanisms, and the emergence of resistance. Professor Collins's patented technologies have been licensed by over 25 biotech, pharma, and medical device companies, and he has helped to launch a number of companies, including Sample6 Technologies, Synlogic, and Biotics. He has received numerous awards and honors, including a Rhodes Scholarship, a MacArthur Genius Award, and an NIH Director's Pioneer Award, a Sanofi Institute Pasteur Award, as well as several teaching awards. Professor Collins is an elected member in the National Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering, the Institute of Medicine, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a charter fellow of the National Academy of Inventors. It is uh, easy to share why uh, Jim is a total legend in the field, and I had the real pleasure of meeting him out in Boston the last time I visited, and just was immediately taken by his quitwick and intelligence and expansive thinking, um, and I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for your time, Jim. Well, thanks for the intro, Harvard, and thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. So, Jim, you know, you have an incredible breadth of um, experience and uh, incredible breadth of applications of your work. What led you into science in the first place, and how did you end up uh, focusing on synthetic biology and the applications therein? You know, the, the origins for my scientists just go back to the home I grew up in. So my dad, who's still with us, an electrical engineer, who, uh, among other things, his team helped build the altimeter for the Apollo 11 lunar module. And oh, wow. He was involved in aviation and industrial military complex. And my mom was a math teacher, and many of my uncles were in engineering disciplines. And my dad would bring stuff home, and so I was exposed to amazing different technologies. Uh, and he was uh, building different things at our house and had lab stuff. So I was in that milieu. And, and then when I was quite young uh, in elementary school, one of my grandfathers went blind. And my other grandfather had a series of strokes when I was in middle school. And so this was in the 1970s. And it was very bothersome to me to see these two men who I loved very much not have anything effectively being done for them to restore function. One had been a stonemason in Ireland, another had been a New York City cop. And they'd been these strong guys, uh, very big praise in my life, who became disabled. And I was struck by seeing all this amazing technology that my dad was exposing me to uh, for shooting stuff up into the sky and shooting stuff out of the sky. And I saw nothing being done to basically restore function in the biological and medical world. And decided I really wanted to get into what would be biomedical engineering, a field that really didn't exist yet in the 70s. But went in and um, became engaged uh, through grad school. And interestingly, from my first decade as an academic, where I was a professor at Boston University, primarily focused on medical devices for things such as stroke, 
never worked on, on vision, but for restoring sensory function. I got engaged in synthetic biology through a roundabout way, really for the environment I was at in Boston University. I had no background in molecular biology, but the chair of our department of biomedical engineering then was Charles Cantor, who was one of the PIs of the Genome Project. And the dean of engineering at BU at the time was Charles DeLissi, who had conceived the Genome Project when he was a program officer at the Department of Energy. In the 90s, there were dramatic debates in bioengineering departments, biomedical engineering departments around the US about genetic engineering as not being an engineering discipline that the geneticists had stolen our term. You saw that our field had largely stopped at about tissue engineering and was beginning to get into cellular mechanics, but it had not entered molecular biology. And so when you look, for example, at the genome effort, there really weren't biomedical engineers involved. There were bioinformaticists, uh, for sure, computational efforts, but no real biomedical engineering. Cantor and Delissi encouraged me to consider getting into that field. They introduced me to Eric Lander, they introduced me to Lee Hood, Stu Kaufman, other luminaries. And each of those luminaries were incredibly generous with the time and said, Jim, we'd love to get a guy like you with control theory background because we really now need to figure out how these parts work together in these living cells that were sequenced. And they were really pointing to what became systems biology. We explored that space mm -hmm. and quickly realized that the data were not at hand to really infer genomic networks at the time. This was in the late 90s. Um, and it would be... Uh, fool's errand to try to infer those networks. And so we decided to take a different approach. So instead of trying to reverse engineer the complexity of the living cell, could you tinker, as most engineers do, and build biological circuits from the bottom up mm -hmm. that could be used to reprogram living cells? And it was these efforts by our lab and other groups that were emerging in the late 90s that led to what became synthetic biology. It's an amazing history. And yeah, you widely consider the father, if not one of the fathers of synthetic biology, which is incredible because that field is now moving on to reinterpreting or rebuilding everything that we uh, thought that we take for granted. Uh, you know, in a lot of the companies that, that we funded IndieBio uh, use yeah. synthetic biology to that, to that extent. Um, and so really uh, an amazing premise for genetic engineering, uh, which was actually my degree uh, as an undergrad at UC Santa Barbara uh, you know, back in the day. So, you know, once you, in your control system, so you really are unique in that you have this multidisciplinary background of engineering and control systems theory, and then bringing in molecular biology. What are some of the insights as you start to realize that there's a, there's a real crossover there between how the big picture, how these uh, control systems work, and what was actually happening in the cell? Were you starting to see maybe the cell as kind of a mechanical system almost? How did that line up for you? Yeah, you know, so, the, the, you know, expanding my background a bit, uh, I actually originally came out of the physics world and moved into engineering and did control systems in the context of nonlinear dynamics. And so really came at it from a very high level and the idea of searching for general principles. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about our early efforts also in synthetic biology, it's intriguing to really see our, our thinking in the very late 90s around the genetic toggle switch, this bistable switch that we built as one of the first synthetic gene circuits. And we built it really as an idea to have as a test bed to validate our mathematical models we developed, then saw how messy actual molecular biology is and how complicated a living cell is. You know, biology gets in the way of kind of your engineering designs in synthetic biology on a regular basis. I don't think we ever thought of it from a mechanics standpoint. I think we recognized, we actually initially, the models were really driven, were motivated by electrical circuits, mm -hmm. but we embodied the mathematics really from more 
chemical circuit as models, mm -hmm. and then got into the actually building an E. coli, in this case, high copy plasmids. And I think the, the first feature that we recognized as being critical that should be incorporated and accounted for was stochasticity, and that the amount of noise in these living cells is huge. Most of the models that we developed and our colleague developed in the early days did not account for stochasticity. So you had these very clean, these analytical models that you had on your whiteboard that didn't translate so well when you got into the actual cell. And having the stochasticity helped. Now to speak to a bigger issue that underlies your question, I think back to 20 years ago, that much of the motivation came from kind of the circuit model for synthetic biology. You're going to design it. It should function what you like, relatively simple. You might expect to have the behavior good when you get into the lab. What had not happened in the first 15 years, the level that I think it should, was introducing control theory into the field. When you think about the systems we build in engineering, we teach our students to build outside of biology, rarely do you set it up as more or less just an open loop type circuit that will behave in the way you like. Yes, in the lab perhaps, but if you're going to put it in the real world, you want to have feedback so that it can adjust its behavior depending upon the changing situations and in the face of stochasticity. We had, in those first 10 to 15 years, there was not as much control theory. It was largely just a circuit analogy. Now we're starting to see control theory come in in order to improve functionality of these circuits in the face of high-level stochastic, high-level noise, let alone variant conditions, whether it's changing temperature or you're getting more crowded. And that's leading us to much higher functionality. Interesting, right? So, so these systems become much more robust. Yeah, exactly, right? As you have these uh, control systems in place. I mean, it's interesting when you think about life or like a cell, right? It truly is, a, in essence, a thermodynamic system. Yeah, and, and you have the additional feature that has been underutilized and underdressed, and there are many of these, but in particular that your system can mutate, putting this pressure on this living cell with this circuit, metabolic pressure and others. And even as you think about robustness, which is you know, a nice way to capture really what we're trying to get after, how do you make your circuit robust to mutations? And are there, circuit, are there control principles that you can use? And or are there circuit architectures that you can introduce that would enable your circuit to be ready to function when you need it to function in the face of these selection pressures and mutation? And what we've seen is that uh, the microbes, we primarily work in bacteria, but the microbes will introduce mutations to disable your circuit. How do you ensure that when you need that kill switch or that safety switch or that sensing element to be ready to go, that it's still there? That's a challenge that we generally don't face in aerospace and or other mechanical engineering disciplines. Right. That, that's a very good point. Of course, it always reminds us back to this, the famous scene in Jurassic Park, right? <laughs> like, yeah. life finds a way. <laughs> but that's, but I think that's, it's a really amazing uh, thought, right? Is true to, to truly unlock the power of genetic engineering and synthetic biology, um, the idea of control is central, right? Um, because without that, then you haven't engineered anything. Yeah, no, I, you know, I think control is key. I mean, you can, you can still have design. So design would be an element of, of a design structure that mm -hmm. maybe doesn't, that's say an open loop. And mm -hmm. it's not simply design that I made a red chair, right? It's that, it's generally that you're going to have a sensing an element, make a decision, and impact the environment. Right. Now, you can do that in an open-loop fashion where there is control, an open-loop control, but not a feedback-based control. The feedback will give you the additional robustness. Now, this additional feature of mutation is also an under, dramatically underutilized feature in synthetic biology as follows, is that because these systems will mutate, we have the 
benefit of turning to directed evolution for right. making things better. Sure. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting within the synthetic biology field writ large that I think directed evolution has been dramatically underutilized. Mm-hmm. certainly in the enzymatic world and the protein world, mm-hmm. pioneering efforts by Francis Arnold and David yeah. Baker have certainly shown the value. But on the circuit standpoint, not so much. Mm-hmm. 20 years now into the field. And I think part of it is that it goes against the engineering culture, right? The idea that we're just going to generate a million or a billion variants and select. Yes. One goes against the idea of I'm going to design the very right. best one and build it and show you that it's the very best one. And so we've had very few takers in my lab for efforts mm-hmm. around direct evolution. And I think this must be repeated across the dozens, hundreds of labs around the world because I see very little output in, in the literature. It reminds me of the fact that like many of our companies that are building um, in essence genetic, genetic circuits within uh, microbes to produce uh, valuable compounds of food and other things. Um, in essence, the more you engineer the metabolic pathways, uh, i.e. design, uh, the, the more fragile and lower the yield becomes. Whereas where, when you use a more directed evolution approach, the rest of the organism stays robust as well. And I think there's a there's a broader implication in there as well, right? Where you get a more quote unquote natural, for lack of a better word, uh, metabolic pathway or whatever it is that you were trying to design, um, such that the overall robustness is um, kept. I, yeah, no, it speaks to another you know, emerging topic in the field hmm. over the last five years, which is a growing appreciation for the interaction of the pathway or circuit with the host organism. Right often called chassis or synthetic mm-hmm. And that when we began to introduce the synthetic circuits 20 years ago, you heard about uh, orthogonality was being thrown around. So taking an element that didn't naturally exist in the organism or a set of elements creating a circuit and saying, oh, thus it's, it's not going to interact with the genome. I think in many cases that mm-hmm. probably was true, mm-hmm. but what was underappreciated is you're still interacting with the host because you're placing a metabolic demand to drive and run that circuit. Mm-hmm. And in interesting ways that would impact the health, the fitness of the organism, it would impact the functioning of the circuit and or pathway. So in the case of more traditional industrial biotechnology, you place this load on the bug and the bug is going to alter certain features of your pathway and or change the output depending upon its growth cycle depending on the time of day. And we're now just beginning to more deeply appreciate the importance of designing and evolving the circuit in mm-hmm. conjunction with the underlying host organism. And, and that really gets me to think about the idea now not to anthropomorphize uh, bacterium, but right, the, this bacterium wants something, right? quote unquote. It wants to generate some sort of, you know, it wants to live, it wants to divide. But when you put this metabolic load on them and it's doing what it can to alter that, it speaks to this kind of like this goal that it's trying to get to, right? Now, again, I'm, I'm in very much in the danger of anthropomorphizing something that shouldn't be, but if we understand what that quote-unquote goal is, um, can we alter that? Or has there been researcher thoughts uh, around creating a more robust metabolic uh, design um, by figuring out what is driving uh, mutation, changing environmental variables such that the actual bacterium stays more stable in a certain way? Yeah, I know it's interesting. So, you know, within this context of SinBio, we've explored how you could reduce 
the tendency of the bug to introduce mutations or changes to the circuit, whether it's reducing its overall mutation frequency or transposons. But you get after a larger issue as well. And you know, I, I tend to anthropomorphize the bacteria all the time, but you know, the bug wants to divide. Anything that kind of impedes it can be a problem if somebody else can outcompete it. So you now are competing for resources. So if you start with an isogenic population that everybody has the same circuit or pathway, fine. But if somebody acquires a mutation that gives it a growth advantage, it can begin to dominate. And how do you control for that? And there's always interesting notions around addiction modules and how do you make it so that you make it attractive to have this additional burden on the bug. And there's been some work. I haven't been satisfied with much what I've seen from the standpoint. And so it opens up so many interesting possibilities. There's so much more to be learned. Yes. And, and where we need not only more input from the control theorists, we need more input from biologists in the field. Right. Biology is still being dominated by the engineers who large trained outside that came in and computer scientists. We need more bona fide biologists who can help bring their depth of experience around living cells to help us do better job at engineering. Yeah, I'm endlessly fascinated by by this topic, and and it is so hairy. Right? Like there's so many different things all happening at once, and I think that's what makes it so powerful and yet so difficult to to really. Um, get down into. And so recently, more, more recently, you've been using a lot of artificial intelligence and um, machine learning to look at antibiotic uh, resistance and things like that. Um, do you want to tell me about some of those efforts and where they came from and, and where you think the front lines are uh, or the horizon that you think is going to break the field open for drug discovery? Yeah, so we, we got engaged in this space uh, really through emerging efforts at MIT around artificial intelligence. So MIT has launched a major initiative a little over two years ago. As part of the initiative, uh, we created uh, the Jamil Clinic at MIT with uh, incredibly generous support from Muhammad Jamil, MIT grad from the 70s and a great guy who's very, very forward-looking. And it's an institute that's co-led by myself and Regina Barzila. So Regina is one of the world leaders in applying AI to healthcare. We came together through this, hadn't known each other. And I've been working in my lab for over a decade on antibiotics, using different systems biology approaches to better understand how antibiotics act and how resistance arises. Regina and I decided to see, could we harness the power of AI or specifically deep learning to address the antibiotic resistance crisis? So it is one of the existential crises facing humankind. The yes. number of resistant bugs are growing whilst the number of new antibiotics being developed and approved is dropping. Right. And we took a very straightforward approach. Briefly, we created a training set of 2,500 compounds, 1,700 FDA-approved drugs, including more or less the known universe of antibiotics, plus 800 natural compounds, mm-hmm. applied it to E. coli, and asked, was the compound exhibiting antibacterial activity or not? Mm-hmm. We took those data along with the molecular structure of each compound and trained a deep neural net, learned molecular features associated with antibacterial activity, applied mm-hmm. it to the drug repurposing library of 6,100 molecules, mm-hmm. and asked the deep learning model to identify compounds that fit two criteria. One, that they're predicted to be good antibiotics, but two, they don't look like existing antibiotics. And okay. only one molecule in that library fit those criteria. It's a molecule we call halicin. Okay. That it turns out to be a remarkably potent novel antibiotic huh. that is effective against multi-drug resistant, pan-resistant, and extensively drug resistant. And we applied the same model then to a compound library of 1.5 billion molecules, mm-hmm. looked at about 10% of it, could screen in three or four days, mm-hmm. and identified a number of new 
class of antibiotics as well that we're now further exploring. So the potential here is to use this new platform in a data-driven kind of bilingual spanning the machine learning, and in this case, antibiotic drug discovery manner to get after novel compounds. And we're now extending it in a few ways, now training models to go after narrow spectrum antibiotics. So ones that mm -hmm. go specifically mm -hmm. after pathogens, bisperia, or commensal. And two, using the platform, not simply as a screening tool against existing library, but as a design tool. The features that it learned to be associated, molecular features, with antibacterial activity and use it to construct de novo compounds that could be tested. And we mm -hmm. think these efforts will serve both to dramatically reduce the cost and time of early discovery efforts, but can also be used to dramatically reduce the amount of money needed to get a drug through approval by basically using input on what's needed for a narrow spectrum to guide the design and then set up, for example, a very small trial that's for a condition that might have orphan disease status, for now a much smaller number of patients that could be done over a shorter period of time to get after needed antibiotic. First of all, amazing work, uh, and I, I'm hoping that uh, those compounds are advancing towards clinic because you know the number of efforts using AI and ML to to go um, discover drugs, and I think uh, you know it's an open question as to at least in my mind the effectiveness or how much better the, it is um, than a traditional screening approach, let's just say. I'm hoping that it will be. Are you using the generative approach of once you screen, is there any certain ways or tricks that you were thinking about when you're setting up your ML approach um, that kind of bucked or was different than what other people were doing? Yeah, so a few things. One is we used a message passaging, deep neural net, developed by Regina Barzilay and Tommy Jocko. So this was published as ChemProp and is available, freely available, that really gets after compound structure atom by atom that can then be associated with different phenotypic features, either scalar, mm -hmm. antibiotic, yes, no, and yep. or multidimensional vector mm -hmm. that might be antibiotic, yes, no, toxic, yes, no, soluble, yes, no, and or. Got it. Continuous data. You know, I, I think what we did that was different than many efforts that coming out of academia and some from industry is that we generate our own data mm -hmm. in our own assays. And albeit it was a small amount of data, which is surprising how well we did. I and then that. we had our own assays against which we could also test the predictions. I see. And so you know, many of the high profile efforts in AI and drug discovery are largely coming at it from the AI side and as folks right. using other data sets. And you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Look, I think they're making some efforts. You know, related second is that we were we benefited, I think, tremendously from having young people in my lab and young people in Regina and Tommy's lab who were willing to become bilingual. Folks largely come from antibiotics in my side, learned enough deep learning to speak to Regina and Tommy's and vice versa, Tommy and right. Regina's young folks were able to learn enough antibiotics that they could interact. And one of our key elements, in addition to being able to generate data and run our own experiments, we go deep on the compounds, was that we knew which questions to ask. So in antibiotics, uh, the field suffers from people just finding the next generation mm -hmm. and or an analog of a beta-lactam. And I think the question that we asked on the initial screen and then the larger screen, which was not simply to predict which would be a good antibiotic, but to say, yeah, it can't look like an existing antibiotic, now challenges the model 
to not only get after a molecule with feature, mm -hmm. feature like, but also has a structural feature that's distinct from what we have, opening up the possibility of getting after something. Further, I'll go and say that I think a lot of folks are fixating on the accuracy of their model. Mm -hmm. And if you keep the human expert in the loop, I, I think you don't have to worry as much about it, that it becomes just a tool that eventually. So for example, in our model, it had a true positive rate of about 51.5%. It was good enough, right? It wouldn't be good enough if, if it was truly just an autonomous system where it would be the end arbiter on, do we have a good antibiotic or not? You couldn't trust it. Google would not use this as part of their search. Gave us, it narrowed our list. And now if you're coupling it to mm -hmm. this Tanimoto score, which was the structural one, which is established. And so there we actually used non-machine learning. And then we had a team of experts that could look to see what are the meaningful molecules we should go after is where we made a difference. Mm -hmm. You know, in a similar spirit, I'm now involved with, have been involved for a couple of years with a flagship pioneering company called Celerity mm -hmm. that is similarly generating their own data using some outside data, but generating your own data, using machine learning in a very clever way to get after cellular state and mm -hmm. to analyze cellular state, not getting after targets per se, but of changes in gene expression overall from a network standpoint and looking at phenotypic changes. Uh, and they similarly have been training people now to be multilingual. The biologists, the machine learning, the chemists are also being brought in on structural design, really exciting new medicines in the coming few years. That's great to hear. Um, yeah, I think, you know, a couple of things that jumped out at me, right? Generating your own data, I think is absolutely key. It's, yeah. you know, AI and ML is really as good as the data. Um, yeah. And so if you don't, you know, public scraping is always a, a you know, throw of the dice. Uh, and then parsing that public scrape is, is even, you know, harder. Um, but then, you know, like the 51 and a half percent, right? That, that rate goes way up if you're passing it through several times. Right, fifty-one percent and a half, or fifty-one and a half percent every multiple, multiple times gets you much more accurate. The human in the loop and wet in the loop um, it reminds me that we have a food company that uses uh, a human in the loop ML to produce uh, recipes for making plant-based foods, and it was remarkable to me to watch, you know, just a different field, how that process yielded a much faster and much better recipe for plant-based food than the ML would have done on its own. And it was very light and very inexpensive in complexity to just add a person. Whereas, you know, trying to keep a person out of the loop would have been 10 times more complex to arguably not get as good. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the one part that is harder to deal with is the explainability of the AI. So are you guys trying to get to the why? Um, underneath it, or does that? Yeah, we are. So, a couple of points. You know, I had a, a really talented postdoc, uh, Jason Yang, who's starting his faculty career now at Rutgers. Right. And he published a piece out of our lab a little less than a year ago on white box machine learning or antibiotic discovery. And what he did was fascinating is that he took metabolic network models mm -hmm. and actually overlaid a deep learning machine learning approach for these for mm -hmm. input around different metabolites and was able to use then the resulting model to gain insight into metabolic pathways underlying the actions of certain antibiotics. And it yet led, he could then generate the data, he could do experimental follow-up and really show that you could open up the learned model. In this case, the structure was defined by the metabolic network. So he had right. to find structure that he could then have learning properties on and he could study it. I think it opens up possibilities now in our efforts with Regina, 
we are intrigued and I've been challenging my team on how far can we open up the model and potentially project it onto structure space to better understand what are the molecular features that it's identifying as being really key to antibiotics right. and which ones are not, right? So many people don't appreciate that the negative data can be as valued as the positive data. Sure. This molecule did not work as an antibiotic or these right. features were learned to not. And we're now thinking how to do that. I've challenged a few and I've gotten a lot of pushback, but I'm not giving up on how you could open it up either in a contrived manner and or in a, in a direct intuitive meaningful way. In essence, looking for either like, you know, the killer amine group or whatever, whatever, you know, group that is, as well as the structural component that will always produce ineffectiveness, right? Yeah. Um, the other limitation that we should solve for is the compound screen to begin with, right? The, the just the known chemical entity space, uh, the permutations truly should be much larger than it is today. You know, our medchem is, is what it is. And so we have this sort of artificially bounded starting point. Um, it would be interesting to see how that changes, you know, in the next decades with quantum computing, um, yeah. allowing us to understand, you know, how to make physical structures better. Yeah. yeah. And so here we are um, in the shadow of COVID and uh, you and I uh, are both you know, working super hard on a bunch of initiatives around trying to create cures and diagnostics and all sorts of things to help fight uh, this current pandemic. What are some of the things that you guys have been doing in your lab that are giving you some hope and excitement on, um, on this front? Yeah, so you know, I'll make a couple of comments given that we just spoke about the AI and then I'll get deep into diagnostics. So we've been using the AI around therapeutics on two counts. One is an underappreciated feature of the pandemic is that bacterial co-infections are playing a very big role. Uh, one out of seven COVID-19 patients who need to be hospitalized have a bacterial co-infection. 50% of those who die have a bacterial co-infection. Wow. When you think back to, look back to the Spanish flu of 1918, it was deadly largely because of bacterial co-infections in the pre-antibiotic era. So we've been exploring how the platform can be utilized to address the need for effective antibiotics for lung infections. We've repurposed it to look at antivirals. So the platform itself, sure. is nothing specific to antibiotics, uh, right. the ML and even the broad approach, it's just that the data we generated was specific antibiotics in our assay. We've since looked at what's available and the data are not as robust or as plentiful as we'd like for training the models. Uh, but we've now set up assays in our lab at MIT to generate the appropriate training data to begin to create learned models that could be used as a screening tool and potentially as a design tool for getting after therapeutics. So we are hopeful there and think that the platform writ large has great potential across other indications as well, whether it's malaria or a complex condition like cancer. Within synthetic biology, we as a lab have been working very, very hard over the last six years or so around various diagnostics. And much of our effort is kind of under the banner of freeze-dried cell-free synthetic biology. We showed about six years ago, that you could take the machinery outside of a living cell. The machinery mm -hmm. would be DNA, RNA, right. things like ribosomes, ATP, amino acids. And th these have been played with in petri dishes and test tubes for over six decades. Keith Bardia, a postdoc in my lab, showed and tested that what would happen if you took those cell-free extracts, along with synthetic biology components, and freeze-dried them onto paper. 
Hmm. But what he found was that when you did that, that they could be stable indefinitely at room temperature mm-hmm. and could be reactivated by rehydration, whether with a patient sample or simply water. And then they would function as if they were back inside the living cell. Hmm. And we use this to create a range of paper-based diagnostics, initially antibiotic resistance. We then addressed the Ebola crisis of 2014. We addressed the Zika crisis of 2016 with diagnostics that were deployed as part of the crisis. And Keith Bardi just finished a massive clinical trial of 3,000 patients in Colombia, Ecuador, and Brazil, looking at Zika, chikungunya, dengue, and yellow right. fever. Well, we've obviously now repurposed this in various forms to get after COVID-19. And probably our, our biggest translational success is through a startup of our Sherlock Biosciences that is focused on both CRISPR-based diagnostics and synthetic biology-based diagnostics. Will Donda, their CEO, and Will Blake, their CTO, and Will had been a grad student of mine in the early days of synthetic biology and was an entrepreneur in residence at Bees. They pushed Sherlock Biosciences, so I'm a co-founder and a board member, to take some of our CRISPR-based diagnostics, and they actually got an FDA-EA-approved COVID-19 diagnostic that is rapid and incredibly accurate, and it became the first CRISPR-approved product for clinical use. And they are soon going to announce a major partnership with a manufacturer that can scale this up. This is Sherlock? This is Sherlock. And now within my lab at the Beeson at MIT, we're working very aggressive, very hard on various synthetic biology embodiments for at-home type diagnostics. Mm-hmm. So we are looking at a saliva-based at-home diagnostic, both for detecting viral RNA as well as antibodies using various elements from synthetic biology and CRISPR. Mm-hmm. And we're also developing a face mask-based diagnostic. In each case, this is freeze-dried cell-free, but within that freeze-dried cell-free context, we showed, going back and, and had an effort over the last year and a half, around wearable synthetic biology. So we mm-hmm. showed it's not limited to paper. We do it in clothing and textiles and had shown you could develop viral sensors, bacterial sensors, nerve agent sensors, various metabolites that could be embodied on protective gear for first responders or for healthcare workers, military personnel, hikers. And we're now using this in a face mask and are about a week or two away from finalizing an academic proof of concept demonstration of its functionality. Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, Truly fantastic. And uh, I I love the idea. I mean, cell-free is an amazing uh, concept and, and technology being developed. Applying it to a paper strip and basically rehydrating through a lateral flow. I mean, what a what a great idea! And you guys are able to control for the you know like sample size, sample size basically, and the stochastics to get the reaction to happen. That extremely cool technology. What we really need is something that's super fast and at the point right of care, like five minute test. Am I safe to go into that crowded audience? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Yes or no? Um, and uh, and the second we have that, I think our economy will will be much more open for business. So um, really important work there. Uh, where else do you see, like, you know, you know in, the, in the few minutes we have left, I'd love to chat with you just, again, you, you, you sit at this, at this vantage point of seeing so, the intersection of so many different technologies uh, that are cutting edge. Where do you see uh, synthetic biology going and where, what, what do you wish more people were working on? Um, that, that you think is underexplored? You know, the field is obviously also impacting vaccine development. That's right. So, you know, of note, you know, the Moderna's effort is actually an outgrowth of synthetic biology. So our lab, right. along with George Daly, had collaborated with Derek Rossi on Moderna's founding technology. 
So they, we had developed synthetic stabilized mRNA. That, that came from your lab. Uh, so we are part of a large that's team. That's amazing. Dave Rossi was the lead and did a piece in uh, 2010 in Cell Stem Cell. It showed these could lead to reprogram redifferentiation. Of note, two things of note, we actually mentioned in the discussion that it could be used for vaccines. Derek noted in the acknowledgement that he was founding mode RNA therapeutics, which came before Dana, right. to commercialize the technology. Right. Moderna has since brought in some related technology, I think, from UPenn to build, but it has symbiote origins. We are also working on re-engineering the BCG vaccine to address COVID-19. So there are a number of SynBio efforts that, that are noteworthy in still facing the pandemic. You know, where I see the field going, I, I, I think there's, you know, excitement. I think uh, when we look back on this century, I think synthetic biology will have turned out to be one of the defining technologies for this century. Mm -hmm. The idea that you can engineer biology for good is going to play a bigger and larger role, not only to address healthcare challenges, but also to address challenges in food, in water, in the environment, in energy, generally sustainability. Uh, so, you know, there's many directions that I see. I think, you know, there's stuff on the ground. I don't think we have enough parts. Mm -hmm. It's been around 20 years. We largely are using about three dozen parts in a reusable fashion. We could use design, we could use deep learning and machine learning both to find more parts, so do biodiversity mining in nature, as well as to better infer design rules so that I see that we, we don't still know enough biology to really make it a, an efficient engineering discipline. And I think that we're going to see also a big growth in people using synthetic biology to get after better insights into biology. So not only do we need biological insights to make SynBio better, I think SynBio as a set of tools, kind of like the patch plant for neuroscience, will further emerge in the coming few years to enable biologists to probe the complexity of the cell. I think we've now moved well beyond studying the single gene or single protein to studying the cell as a system. Mm -hmm. So you take a reductionist approach to some subsystem to best get after the right controls and insight. But I think synthetic biology will give us the additional knobs, tools to probe the cell in a very meaningful way to better understand its function that can then further feed SynBio and biotech efforts. That last bit also very much excites me uh, as, as I think about um, you know, the ability to make a product by, by introducing you know, a couple enzymes that, that can take a feedstock and turn it into a product is one thing. But when you understand truly the emergent behaviors phenotypically of a cell from a set of you know, uh, related genes uh, in a network, um, what we will be able to do with that in terms of human and planetary health, to me, um, is truly astronomical. And I agree with you that uh, this will be a foundational technology for the century as a species. Um, continue being able to pull people, you know, 5 billion people out of poverty uh, and give them a, a, a middle class or, uh, you know, a modern lifestyle that won't produce such demands on the planetary resources that that it would um, basically, you know, strip us dry. So we need this technology. Um, we need this to to function um, as a civilization. Uh, and I, I really, it, it's such an honor for me to speak with you uh, as one of the founding fathers of of this whole field. I mean, truly incredible. So a little starstruck during this uh, conversation. Um, but but yeah, no, thank you so much for for your time, your insights. Uh, sharing with our audience. Um, but mostly, thank you so much for all your contribution to uh, uh, humanity's you know, potential. 
Well, Arvin, thanks so much. Thanks for the kind words. Thanks for having me on your show. And thank you for all that you're doing with IndieBio. Your investments are having a big difference, making a big difference. And I think it's going to be an exciting next decade. Thanks, Jim.